I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hi, John. Hello, John. How are you today? I am doing magnificently. How about you? I'm doing great. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. Um, Let's see. What's going on with me? Um, We are recording this in October, but if I remember correctly the calendar, I am going to be smack dab in the middle of Tech Week for SpongeBob the Musical. Oh, so is it going well? It's been going well so far. Ask me again in a month and we'll see how it's going. But it's a great group of kids. It's an amazing director who I absolutely adore working with. So I have faith. Let's put it that way. I have faith. Excellent. So what are we talking about today, John? Today we are talking about Les Miserables. With music by Claude Michel Schoenberg. Lyrics by Alain Boubile and Jean-Marc Nattel. Book by Alain Boubile and Claude Michel Schoenberg. Based on the novel Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. Les Miserables opened at the Broadway Theater on March 12, 1987, before transferring to the Imperial Theater on October 17, 1990. The show played 6,680 performances before closing on May 18th of 2003. Les Miserables was directed by Trevor Nunn and John Caird, with music direction by Robert Billig. The original Broadway cast included Colm Wilkinson as Jean Valjean, Terence Mann as Javert, Randy Graff as Fontaine, Leo Burmeister as Thenardier, Jennifer Butt as Madame Thenardier, Judy Kuhn as Cosette, David Bryant as Marius, Francis Raphael as Eponine, and Michael McGuire as Enjolras. La Mise was nominated for 12 Tony Awards and won eight, including Best Musical, Book, Original Score, Featured Actor for Michael McGuire, Featured Actress for Frances Raphael, Direction, Scenic, and Lighting Design. France, 1815. A chain gang of prisoners work at hard labor. After 19 years in prison, five for stealing bread for his sister's starving son and her family, and the rest for trying to escape, Jean Valjean, prisoner 24601, is released on parole by the prison guard Javert. By law, Valjean must display a yellow ticket of leave, which identifies him as an ex-convict. As a convict, Valjean is shunned wherever he goes and cannot find regular work with decent wages or lodging. But the Bishop of Dine offers him food and shelter. Desperate and embittered, Valjean steals the bishop's silver, He is captured by the police, but rather than turn him in, the bishop lies and tells the police that the silver was a gift, giving Valjean a pair of silver candlesticks in addition. The bishop tells Valjean that he must use the silver to become an honest man. Humbled by the bishop's kindness, Valjean resolves to redeem himself and tears up his yellow ticket, breaking his parole, but giving himself a chance to start a new life free from the stigma of his criminal past. Eight years later, in 1823, 
Jean Valjean has assumed a new identity as Monsieur Madeleine, a wealthy factory owner and mayor of Montreux-sur-Mer. Fantine is a single mother working in his factory, trying to support her daughter Cosette, who is being raised by an innkeeper and his wife, while Fantine labors in the city. Unbeknownst to Valjean, the factory foreman lusts after Fantine, and when she rejects his advances, he takes it out on the other workers who resent her for it. One day, a co-worker steals a letter about Cosette from Fantine, revealing to the other workers that Fantine has a child. A fight breaks out, and the foreman and the other workers use the incident as a pretense to fire Fantine. Desperate for money, she sells her locket and hair, finally becoming a prostitute, and attracts local sailors. When she fights back against an abusive customer, Javert, now a police inspector stationed in Montreux-sur-Mer, arrives to arrest her. Valjean, passing by the scene, pities Fantine, and when he realizes she once worked for him and that she blames him for her misfortune, he is guilt-stricken. He orders Javert to release her and takes her to the hospital. Soon afterwards, Valjean rescues a man who is pinned by a runaway cart. Javert, who has up until now not recognized Valjean, though he has pursued the missing fugitive for several years, witnesses the incident and becomes suspicious, remembering the incredible strength Valjean displayed in the work camp. However, he relents when he hears Valjean has been arrested but that man is a stranger who was mistaken for the former prisoner. The real Valjean realizes that this case of mistaken identity could free him forever, but he is not willing to see an innocent man go to prison in his place. He confesses his identity to the court. At the hospital, a delirious Fantine dreams of Cosette. Valjean arrives at the hospital and promises to find Cosette and protect her. Relieved, Fantine succumbs to her illness and dies. Javert arrives to take Valjean back into custody, but Valjean asks Javert for time to fetch Cosette. Javert refuses, insisting that a criminal like Valjean can never change for the better. They struggle, but Valjean overpowers Javert and escapes. The duplicitous innkeepers, the Thenardiers, use Cosette as a servant and treat her cruelly while exhorting money from Fantine by claiming that Cosette is regularly and seriously ill, as well as demanding money to feed and clothe Cosette, all while indulging their own daughter, Eponine. Cosette dreams of a life with a mother where she is not forced to work and is treated lovingly. The Thenardiers cheat their customers, stealing their possessions and setting high prices for low-quality service, and live a life of criminal depravity. Valjean meets Cosette while she's on an errand drawing water and offers the Thenardiers payment to adopt her. The Thenardiers feign concern for Cosette, claiming that they love her like a daughter and that she is in fragile health, and bargain with Valjean, who pays them 1,500 francs in the end. Valjean and Cosette leave for Paris. Nine years later, in 1832, Paris is in upheaval because of the impending death of General Lamarck, the only man in the government who shows mercy to the poor. Among those mingling in the streets are the student revolutionaries Marius and Enjolras, who contemplate the effect Lamarck's death will have on the poor and desperate in Paris. 
the Thenardiers, who have since lost their inn and now run a street gang that includes the Thenardier's daughter Eponine, who is now grown and has fallen in love with her best friend Marius, who is oblivious to her affections, and the streetwise young urchin Gavroche. The Thenardiers prepare to con some charitable visitors who turn out to be Valjean and Cosette who has grown into a beautiful young woman. While the game bamboozles her father, Cosette runs into Marius, and the pair fall in love at first sight. Thenardier suddenly recognizes Valjean, but before they can finish the robbery, Javert, now an inspector stationed in Paris, comes to the rescue. Valjean and Cosette escape, and only later, when Thenardier tips him off, does Javert suspect who they were. Javert makes a vow to the stars, which represents his belief in a just and ordered universe, where suffering is a punishment for sin, that he will find Valjean and recapture him. Meanwhile, Marius persuades Eponine to help him find Cosette. At a small cafe, Angeros exhorts a group of idealistic students to prepare for revolution. Marius interrupts the serious atmosphere by fantasizing about his newfound love, much to the amusement of his compatriots. When Gavroche brings the news of General Lamarck's death, the students realize that they can use the public's dismay to incite their revolution and that their time has come. At Valjean's house, Cosette thinks about her chance meeting with Marius. She confronts Valjean about the secrets he keeps about his and her own past. Eponine leads Marius to Cosette's garden. He and Cosette meet again and confess their mutual love while a heartbroken Eponine watches them through the garden gate and laments that Marius has fallen in love with another. Thenardier and his gang arrive, intending to rob Valjean's house, but Eponine stops them by screaming a warning. The scream alerts Valjean, who believes that the intruder was Javert. He tells Cosette that it's time once again for them to go on the run and starts planning for them to flee France altogether. On the eve of the 1832 Paris uprising, Valjean prepares to go into exile. Cosette and Marius part in despair. Enjolras encourages all of Paris to join the revolution. The other students prepare for battle. Eponine acknowledges despairingly that Marius will never love her. Marius is conflicted whether to follow Cosette or join the uprising. Javert reveals his plans to spy on the students, and the Thenardiers scheme to profit off the coming violence. Marius decides to stand with his friends, and all anticipate what the dawn will bring. And all of this is done in one song with a turntable. Act 2. As the students build a barricade to serve as their rally point, Javert, disguised as a rebel, volunteers to spy on the government troops. Marius discovers that Eponine has disguised herself as a boy to join the rebels, and, wanting to keep her safe from the impending violence, he sends her to deliver a farewell letter to Cosette. Valjean intercepts the letter and learns about Marius and Cosette's romance. Eponine walks the streets of Paris alone, imagining that Marius is there with her, but laments that her love for Marius will never be reciprocated. The French army arrives at the barricade and demands that the students surrender. Though Javert tells the students that the government will not attack that night, Gavroche recognizes him and quickly exposes him as a spy, and the students detain him. Their plan is to spark a general uprising with their act of defiance, hoping that all the people of Paris will side with them and overwhelm the army. 
Eponine returns to find Marius, but is shot by the soldiers as she crosses the barricade. As Marius holds her, she assures him that she feels no pain and reveals her love for him before dying in his arms. The students mourn this first loss of life at the barricade and resolve to fight in her name. Angelros attempts to confront Marius, who is devastated and heartbroken over the death of his best friend. Valjean arrives at the barricade, crossing the government lines, disguised as a soldier, hoping that he might somehow protect Marius in the coming battle for Cosette's sake. The rebels are suspicious of him at first, but when the army attacks, Valjean saves Angelros by shooting at a sniper and scaring him off, and they accept him as one of them. In return, he asks Angelros to allow him to be the one to execute the imprisoned Javert, which Enjolras grants. But as soon as Valjean and Javert are alone, Valjean frees Javert. Javert warns Valjean that he will not give up his pursuit and rejects what he perceives as a bargain for Valjean's freedom. Valjean says there are no conditions to his release and holds no grudges towards Javert for doing his duty. The students settle down for the night and reminisce about the past while also expressing anxiety about the battle to come. Angelros tells the other students to stay awake in case the enemy strikes unexpectedly in the night, but he tells Marius to get some sleep, knowing Marius is still much too devastated over losing Eponine to stay awake. Grantaire, another student, gets angry and asks the students if they fear dying. Marius wonders if Cosette will remember him if he does. As Marius sleeps, Valjean prays to God to protect Marius, even if the cost for Marius' safety is his own life. As dawn approaches, Angelros realizes that the people of Paris have not risen up with them, but resolves to fight on in spite of the impossible odds. Their resolve is fired even further when the army kills Gavroche, who snuck out to collect ammunition from the bodies on the other side of the barricade. The army gives a final warning, but the revels fight to the last man with Ross exhorting, let others rise to take our place until the earth is free. Everyone at the barricade is killed except Valjean and a gravely wounded Marius who escape into the sewers. Javert returns to the barricade, searching for Valjean amongst the bodies, and finds the open sewer grating. Valjean carries Marius through the sewers, but collapses in exhaustion. While he is unconscious, Thenardier, who has been looting bodies, comes upon them and takes a ring from the unconscious Marius, but flees when Valjean, whom he again recognizes, regains consciousness. When Valjean carries Marius to the sewer's exit, he finds Javert waiting for him. Valjean begs Javert for one hour to bring Marius to a doctor, and Javert reluctantly agrees. Javert finds himself unable to reconcile Valjean's merciful acts with his conception of Valjean as an irredeemable criminal. Refusing to compromise his principles, but no longer able to hold them sacred, he finds himself torn between his beliefs about God and his desire to adhere to the law. He is unable to reconcile and dies by suicide, throwing himself off a bridge. In the wake of the failed revolution, women mourn the deaths of the students. Marius, wounded but alive, despairs at the death of his friends and sees that their sacrifice was for nothing. As he wonders who saved his own life, Cosette comforts him and they reaffirm their blossoming romance. 
Valjean realizes that Cosette will not need him as a caretaker once she's married and gives them his blessing. Valjean confesses to Marius that he is an escaped convict and must go away because his presence endangers Cosette, making Marius promise never to tell. A few months later, Marius and Cosette marry. The Thenardiers crash the reception disguised as nobility and attempt to blackmail Marius, telling him that Valjean is a murderer and that Thenardier saw him carrying a corpse in the sewers after the barricades fell. When Thenardier shows him the ring he stole as proof, Marius realizes that it was Valjean who saved his life. The newlyweds leave to find Valjean. The Thenardiers are not discouraged, instead gloating that their craven practicality has saved their lives time and time again. At a convent, Valjean awaits his death. Fontaine appears to him and tells him that he has been forgiven and soon will be with God. Cosette and Marius arrive to find Valjean near death. Valjean thanks God for letting him live long enough to see Cosette again, and Marius thanks him for saving his life. Valjean gives Cosette a letter confessing his troubled past and the truth about her mother. As he dies, the spirits of Fontaine and Eponine guide him to heaven, reminding him that to love another person is to see the face of God. They are joined by the spirits of those who died at the barricades, who sing that in the next world, God lays low all tyranny and frees all oppressed people from their shackles. Well, that's going right, to be well, about if you it. haven't listened to <laughs> I love that we both jumped in with the same joke. Sweet it's just, Jesus. It's such a long show. And it's funny because just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about On the Town. And I think I made a similar joke of, well, thanks for joining us at the end of, of that one. Because I thought, okay, that's a long synopsis. Nope. According, you know, compared to this, On the Town is a nice, neat, little cozy one act because this show just doesn't end. And what's even more fascinating is if you look at the source material this story is taken from, this is only half that book. Les Miserables is written by Victor Hugo, has this story as part two. Part one is a whole different part of the book that talks about the bishop and France in the early 1800s and this and that. And sweet Jesus, this is just half the book. But you know what? At least in the book, you can read it at your own pace. In the musical, you are stuck at the glacial pacing of Schoenberg's music because so much of this musical, in fact, all of this musical is sung. And it is just glacially paced. It is, it, 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 I mean, okay, everyone probably knows this show. If you're not familiar with this show, you should, and you are listening to a musical theater podcast, you should probably do your due diligence and go listen to a recording of this piece. And you will find very quickly that this show has sung dialogue and it, it, I mean, it gets mocked all the time because it is kind of part of the iconic nature of this score is like the dramatically declaimed text. But also that makes the text so slow because every line is just overwrought with musical writing and emphasis and, and this, this, this rhythm that is just monotonous and tedious and just mind numbing. 
one of the things, and first of all, I agree with you 100%. One of the things that separates this show from me from other sung through shows that we've talked about. So we've talked about a few. We've talked about Phantom of the Opera. We've talked about Evita. Those are the two that immediately come to mind. They differ from this show in the sense that while they are all sung through as well, there is at least a dichotomy between what is a solo number, a duet, a group number, and dialogue. Andrew Lloyd Webber in, in both of those shows at least has <laughs> compassion enough for his audience goer that he realizes that the dialogue scenes need to get from point A to point B, and he does it in an efficient manner most of the time. There are times where it's still a little overdrawn and wrought out, and okay, fine, whatever. No one's perfect. Andrew Lloyd Webber, most of all, y'all know what our opinion on him is. Here, we don't have that. Everything, I think you put it, is is just about perfect. Everything is this long, wrought gesture. Like, there's no concept of a musical version of recitative here. There's no moving from point A to point B. Every every word is in aria style, in duet style, trio, and so on and so forth. And it just, it, it weighs so heavily. And then... To compound that sin, he gets to these dramatic moments in what should be recitative, but really isn't. And then he gets to what he wants to be, aria, duet, whatever. And he stops and he resets. So there, like a, a moment that sticks out for me is the cafe scene leading into Do You Hear the People Sing? The students are getting riled up and they're overwrought and they're and they're emotional and it's building up and it's building up probably a little bit too floridly and 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 over the top for my tastes but that's a different statement and then we get to that emotional high point and then everything resets because he's got to have a 16 bar intro to do you hear the people say it's like you have now destroyed any emotional movement we have in this show because you you obviously wrote your solos your group group numbers and then you connected it but didn't do so in an efficient way and you've heard it to the point where you are now actively hurting the material you want to emphasize yeah so i feel like we should point out now at, at this moment in time that uh this is an incredibly popular show people love this show and I don't get it. I don't understand why this show is as amazing and immensely popular as it is. I don't understand why people love the songs in this show. I don't understand why people want to be a part of this show. I don't understand why people come to see this show. Like nothing about this show to me is of interest. I, I said in, in our little document here, I made the point, you know, okay, this is adapted from a Victor Hugo novel and you talk about it having this kind of forced romanticism to it. And, and uh, I, I, I feel like one of the biggest flaws of this show is that the show starts with the assumption that we got the characters and does nothing to make us become invested in those characters short of just kind of like little background descriptions like, oh, okay, Valjean stole some bread for his family and that's the crux of all of his suffering is now he gets put in jail and that sucks. And okay, yes, that sucks. But like, I don't care. 
yeah, you stole some bread. You probably shouldn't have been in prison for that long for just trying to feed your family. That said, I don't care. I don't want to see your life for the next three hours. Like you have to give me more than that to make this a compelling reason for you to lead a show. Yes. Connected to that is one of the cardinal sins of this show for me is, you know, there's that old adage that in theater in general, but music theater, especially you need to show, not tell. This show is so incredibly guilty of telling us about something, telling us how we should feel, not showing us how we should feel. And you're right. We don't care. Javert is a perfect example. We're led to believe that he is this officer of the law with a single-minded pursuit of Jean Valjean through the ages from being a prison guard where Valjean is kept to being an officer in Paris and all of that. And it's like, well, we keep hearing about how Javert is just single-minded and almost obsessively going after Valjean, but we don't actually see that. We see no, him in, in fact, when we see him, we see him in all these different other roles. Like it's right. just sort of like he's living his life. And he's like, oh, look, it's that guy I don't like. Oh, let's see what he's up to. Yeah. First time we see him, he's a prison guard. Second time we see him, he's a police officer in the town that happens to be mayored by Valjean. Doesn't recognize him. Now, if you're in this single-minded pursuit of this criminal who you're pursuing for years and you're in the same town of him as him and he's the mayor of the town, so you know who he is and you don't recognize him, I'm going to call bullshit on your single-minded pursuit of this felon. And then we fast forward again. So now Javert is an officer of the police in Paris and Valjean is now pretending to be this high and mighty uh, member of society with, you know, with a, a nice house and social contacts. And again, nope, no clue. Sorry. I could almost forgive that one because Paris is massive. It is ginormous and huge. And yes, okay, I get it. But there is nothing about this that t- shows me Val- uh, Javert is in any way interested in anything than his own career and moving up the ranks. Yet we're supposed to believe he's like this Terminator-esque character who is who is going after John Connor, I mean Jean Valjean, with single-minded focus. You've told me that, but I don't see it. Yeah, this is one of those shows where I find myself hoping everyone dies at the end. Like, and, and fortunately, many and of them fair, do, but not everyone. Like, I, I need some sort of deus ex machina, like preemptive nuke that just comes and obliterates Europe so that all these people burn in a fiery death because it is just so tedious. I mean, to be fair, there are approximately 3,000 characters in this show, it feels like. <laughs> and they all have their own name. And for mostly our sanity, but also yours, we have omitted, like, there are 10 different students, all with the same, or um, all named students. And it's like, we don't need this. Like, you are, you are now going over the top. And it's just too much. Actually, a fun little story I wanted. So I have done this show multiple times. So sorry. No, you know what? Hey, gig's a gig. And the first time I did it, I did it in a high school, which we're, I'm so we, sorry. Will, we will for a moment 
you know, exclude the conversation of why are you doing Les Mis? Not the school version of Les Mis, which also exists, but the full version of Les Mis at a high school. Whole different conversation that we will have someday when I'm less bitter about it. But we're in the student scene and the young man who is playing Angel Ross, we're, we're staging... We're, we're actually, we're staging the, that cafe scene and he keeps getting angrier and angrier as we go. And uh, to the point where I, I stop rehearsal and I say, what, okay, what, what's going on? What's wrong? You keep skipping one of the students. And I go, what do you mean? There's a student right here and you just keep skipping over their lines. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And he points to my score. He says, that student right there. And he points to where it says Tootie. Now, for those of you who are not music music nerds like us, Tootie is an Italian term for everybody. And it literally means when you see it in a score, everybody sing here, everybody play there. Now, okay, yes, it's funny that this, this student, this actual student who is playing a student, didn't know in a, you know, a term for everyone in music, whatever. Funny, but nothing I would ever fault him for. But there are so many named characters in this damn show that he didn't realize that Tootie wasn't just another student because we've got 20. What's wrong with having 21 of them? I mean, you know, those famous students, Angel Ross and Marius and Tootie, that big trio. So there is, I mean, if you have not been able to figure it out by now, and even though we haven't said it, neither one of us particularly like this show. I'm sorry. Did I not say that? I don't like this show. Okay. Let there. Me, now let, we are Let me come record. out and own that. And I don't like this show. There are, there are some silly surface reasons why I don't like this show, such as ex- for the example, this is the show that gave us the overwrought and to the point of nauseating in joke about 24601, which has been lampooned in God knows how many musicals and shows and, and movies and, and, it wouldn't shock me if it's made its way into popular music because it's just so ubiquitous and obnoxious and annoying. I hate the, I hate the number 24601. I irrationally hate that sequence of numbers now because of this show. Is that the fault of this show? I don't, I mean, yes, it, it is because that's how I feel. But there are also some more serious structural issues that hit close to home for both of us about this show. One that I want to focus on is the orchestration. Now, the orchestra for this book, as it is the pinnacle of the mega musical era, came out in 1987, which is like, that is, that is the, the high point. After that, we trail off and we start getting into post-mega musical era, which is fantastic. Huge orchestra. It's got full brass, it's got full winds, it's got full strings, it's got multiple percussion, it's got this, it's got that. It also has multiple keyboards, which, okay, fine. Even now, we have shows that are just keyboard crazy, and I mean, heck, I'm, you know, working on SpongeBob now. It's a three-keyboard show, and each keyboard has approximately three billion patches, um, and that's fine. This one shows its age 
that is a polite way of putting it. Uh, it's synth. It's okay. So you just said the SpongeBob show has three keyboard parts, each with about three billion patches. For those of you who don't know, patches are like pre-programmed sounds. So you're taking a keyboard and you're playing it, but you're not playing it with piano sounds coming out. You're playing it with like pre-programmed MIDI sounds or pre-recorded sounds that are creating other instruments, other colors within the, the sound of the orchestration, which is a really cool thing that allows for more colors in a musical pit, which is traditionally a smaller place. The sounds in Les Mis are just, they're, they're just synths. They're, they're, uh, we were talking before and I was struggling to put into words the sound quality of the synths. If you haven't heard this show, you can go and listen to any song and you'll hear them immediately. If you have heard this show, you know exactly what I'm talking about because they feel almost unique to Les Mis in their sound quality, which is bad. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's really no other way to kind of frou-frou that up at all. There, It's just... It's so anathema to everything else in this show. It's jarring. It's just very uncomfortable. It takes it takes me out of the show. Long and short of it, it just it takes me out of the show. It sounds like fake music. It sounds like the the quality of the synth sound sounds so far removed from anything that can be related to a like a real practical sound that could be produced by an instrument that it just feels fake if you are someone with strong musical connections like John and I and it just it 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 genuinely makes this show almost impossible to listen to because they are everywhere they are constant and they are horrendous and it ultimately some, I mean, that's really the best way to sum up this show. It has Horrendous. artificial, well, it has <laughs> artificial characterizations. It has artificial emotions. It has artificial sounds coming from the pit. This show is mega musical to excess. We've talked about the mega musical era. We've talked about how it's meant to be big and over the top. And this show show is big and over the top, but it's almost done to a grotesque measure here. Everything is over the top. The sound is garish. The emotions are garish. I mean, everything about it, it's ultimately, it feels like this show is one step too far. So if you haven't listened to Les Mis yet, you can actually you know what i'm gonna tell you right now you should go out and listen to it and you have the benefit of because this show is so ubiquitous it has been recorded so many times in so many languages with so many casts in so many countries this show is unique in the sense that it has highlight cds and what i would recommend is go find the highlight CD from the original Broadway cast. So instead of being a 12-disc set, I'm, I, I kid, I think this was three. I'm, I'm trying to remember from when I had it growing up. This was either a two or a three CD set, which is actually a big deal. But there is a one-disc version that exists that is literally just the important songs, which kind of tells you right there 
that if you can get all the important songs on one disc, but you're really releasing three discs, maybe you should rethink about how much music you got in your show. That's what you should listen to. Get it done. Get it over with. Um, it's worth it for the original Broadway cast to hear Colm Wilkinson and Terrence Mann, who uh, respectively play uh, Valjean and Javert. Their performances are great. The music is not great, but their performances, for me personally, make the music. So if you're going to listen to it, go there and then call it a day and you're good. Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on Audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.